0: Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens.
1: Welcome back to the internet's only podcast, History of the Devil. I'm Klaus Yoder, and with me, as always, is my partner in heresy, Travis Stevens.
0: Travis, how are you doing? this fine
1: spring equinoctic
0: evening. Equinoctic evening is the new name of my memoir. Thank you so much, Klaus. It's great to be here as always, joining you today from Texas to mix things up, visiting family here. Um, it's been a lovely stay so far. Next time I come, I will still not invite you to join me, but it was nice for me, Klaus. So that yeah. was all. Yeah. How are you? Great.
1: Hanging in there, hanging in there, not rocking the Lone Star State, but just uh, still here in the Empire State where Empire keeps rolling, um, as it it tends to. Um, Anyway, this week, we got our hands stuck in the Play-Doh canister to talk about the demonology of Neoplatonism. To do so, we're working with an edited volume, Neoplatonic Demons and Angels, edited by Luc Brisson, which came out... Not that long ago by our standards 2018 although I guess we talked about a book that came out in 2021 maybe even 22 21 in our, in our last episode so with uh, with John O'Donnell yeah that's right um, yeah so if you haven't checked that out please go check it out. It, it's an awesome episode. It's so great to talk to people it's talked it's great. would you agree to talk to other human beings? you know it's great that we talk to each other but like other people sometimes that's cool too right?
0: Yeah. Um, if you're cool, you should definitely contact us, um, probably through Twitter. I think you should tweet us and let us know that you're cool and you should be interviewed. And the top three reasons why we should interview you.
1: <laughs> yeah. We're sort of putting out a call for uh, for uh, people to make our lives easier by giving us content instead
0: of having us generate
1: it ourselves. But no. Um, so anyway, this this book came out in 2018. It's about basically giving a background on how Neoplatonism deals with like these different levels of beings, these beings in the middle between gods and human beings. Neoplatonism itself is a term denoting Plotinist philosophers, philosophers in 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 the tradition of Plato, who were working in late antiquity after the rise of Christianity and in many ways are reacting to Christianity's usurpation of traditional Greco-Roman religion and Hellenistic philosophy. None of these thinkers that we're going to be talking about actually thought of themselves as neo. There's no matrix, no matrix chosen ones here. Uh, you know, they don't know kung fu spontaneously. That kind okay, of thing. Okay, but no do Keanu they know Plato?
0: Reeves. Do they know Plato though? And if so, do they mean the great philosopher, or do they mean the toy from my '80s childhood, Klaus? That's my question for you.
1: Well, I think probably both. I think they maybe like the demiurge, like you know mocked up the world with plato first Out before, plato. Like, before creating brilliant. before creating the world i think that's what was. i think that's what the whole origin of, of the word comes from in any case
0: well that's it folks end of the episode i think i have learned a lot already so thank you very much <laughs> now that i know how the world was created the demiurge has always been very unclear to me now i get it so i feel like we're good here yeah
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, no one actually called themselves a neoplatonist. It's a category that got invented later. There are middle plotinists. Presumably none of them called themselves that either. Um, but it's just it's sort of like n- noting the breaks in time when these different traditions of plotinism sort of had resurgences. So it's an ex post facto thing. An important example of a middle, middle plotinist uh, is someone we talked about briefly, I think in the first season, Philo of Alexandria who's a Jewish menoplatonist working in Alexandria, obviously, because it's in the name, but bringing together uh, Greek philosophy and the Hebrew Bible and applying uh, principles of allegorical interpretation and philosophical reason to make sense
0: of divine revelation. So before we get too far, I think it might be a great time for a quick refresh on Plato. And here I am talking about the philosopher. Plato lived in Athens, but in the 5th through 4th centuries before the common era, his teacher Socrates practiced dialectical interrogation of concepts, trying to come up with accounts of justice, the good, truth, the good life, big abstract things like that. Some of the works Plato's most famous for are The Phaedo, which tells the story of the death of Socrates, hemlock, it's a sad story, and his arguments on the immortality of the soul, the Republic in which Socrates and his friends create an imaginary city to think through the meaning of justice. The works of Plato and the Neoplatonists were really interested, that we are really interested in, are the Timaeus, which gives an account of the cosmos and its various functions, and the Parmenides, in which young Socrates gets schooled by the eponymous philosopher whom I'm redupping chicken Parmenides. Chicken Parmenides. (laughs) Chicken. It's a great great chicken. Chicken Parmenides. Thank you. Great. Okay. So uh, Parmenides introduced the idea of the One. Am I saying that deep enough? The One. The primary, (laughs) pristine origin of everything. So the Neoplatonists are thinking about how how the universe proceeds from the emanation of the One how it functions and how humans are able to discipline their bodies and their souls to live in accordance with the transcendent principles of existence. So, you know, like very basic stuff, you know, easy, nothing's complicated here. It's very straightforward.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like the opposite of like Plato in a kindergarten classroom. It is. But We might ask who are these Neoplatonists? Who are we even talking about? So the sort of the, the, the first big name is Plotinus, who is a contemporary of Origins, which is interesting, died 270 in the Common Era. Plotinus is student Porphyry, who died about thirty-five years later, three hundred five CE, And then Iamblichus, who's like the sort of the the next gen of Neoplatonist philosophers, died 325. So it's like a pretty nice spacing between each of their lives there. (laughs) Um, So as we mentioned, these people are working and doing their, their projects as Christianity is gaining ascendancy in the Roman Empire. In many cases, they're polemicizing against it. And that's what I think is very interesting about them as a bunch. They're sort of making this last stand for Greco-Roman polytheism and Hellenistic philosophy while trying to shepherd pagan religion into the most respectable philosophical form it can take. So why... Are they relevant for demons? Why are we talking about them with demons? Why do they care about demons? Well, because Platonism changed with its encounters with Judaism, Christianity, Gnosticism, Manichaeism, and doubtless other religions that we haven't even gotten into on this podcast. There was no real philosophical discussion of angels per se prior to the post-Hellenistic period in Platonic thought. Um, and when I mean Hellenistic period, what, what I mean is after the first stage of Alexander, the great's successors established these Greek like cultural kingdoms across the Mediterranean world and like Syria and Palestine and Egypt and things like that. Um, so a Jewish Hellenistic intellectual living through this, as mentioned before, Philo Alexandria, makes the connections between the angels in the Bible and the what we would call demons or daimons in Plato's writing and about that more on that later uh this connection between the angels and the diamonds uh also extended into gnostic angelologies that appeared later so angels become their own thing in the greco-roman world even independent of what we would think of as like properly christian or jewish usages like angels have a, a big moment and even the neoplatonists are talking about angels
0: and they don't they have no truck with christianity or judaism So the other reason it's really important to talk about demons, or maybe we should use the Greek daimones here, in this non-Christian context, is the very elevated view of divinity that the Neoplatonists had. In some ways, their theology resembles what we discussed back in last season's Gnosticism episode. Now, the accounts definitely vary, but there's a perfectly impassable unified oneness that emanates hypostases such as reason and soul in this outward array until the human soul sparks up on the outer reaches of what we might think of as the big bang or the lower rungs of the great chain of being. Ooh, this is really complicated stuff. Uh, But think of the one in the center emanating out hypostases. Um, I don't know how else to make that. How do we... Hypostases, Klaus, how do we make that sound simpler? I don't know. I don't emanations? Know. Just, like, just emanations, yeah. That's Let's call I'm them saying. emanations. Yes. Yeah. So these emanations proceed from the one until you get, you know, you have reason and soul, um, all the way out to lower forms and, and I think and I think yeah, this is my mistake. Forms. I think
1: even like rather than reason, I think it's like intellect is, is the is, is the one problem instead of reason, but yeah, like uh, intellect. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But whatever it's
0: yeah. okay. I That might depend on who we're talking about. I think that's right, too, yeah. Okay. anyway, um, an important premise of Neoplatonists is that the wider the gap between nature and the first god, the more powers there must be between us and him. Um, And this is from Celestius, a statesman and philosopher, It helps us think about the importance of these intermediaries, we might say, between that one unmoved mover, kind of um, the the one, as it were, and everything else. So this conserves traditional polytheism, super important, in Greco-Roman religion. Yes, we can still have our, like, you know, Zeus and Hera and all that pizzazz, while also carving out space for divine transcendence, and that that's like not an easy thing to make room for. If you think about the very human foibles of the traditional Greek pantheon, um, in relation to the unmoved one, um, having all that hold together in some kind of system takes some serious theological and philosophical work here. So to make this work the neoplatonists perform exegesis on the platonic corpus which is one of their you know source texts right like christian theologians have to start with scripture these folks have to start with plato's writings um, and they they exegete it to make sense of the hierarchies between humanity and god and to understand how human beings might be able to make contact with the transcendent divine the one yeah, that no, that makes that's really helpful. It makes a lot of
1: sense. Um, and before we keep rolling with the one, I can't quite <laughs> do the same sound effect that you do. Uh, just a quick qualification: uh, we're using this pod like we're learning as we go here too. And we're using this pod basically as like a jumping-off point for contextualizing future uh, patristic and medieval demonologies. So we're like we're we're sort of stretching ourselves a bit here with the Neoplatonism jazz. So yeah, like this is this is like. Difficult material, which in some ways is like weirdly familiar and also can be very unfamiliar and counterintuitive at the same time. And I think it's one of the strangest things about Neoplatonism it's like, you're like, OK, like I kind of recognize that. That makes sense. But like, right, like the theory of emanations is not something that's like super uh, familiar or just like ready at hand, for I think, for many of us. So we're treading cautiously and not really making any wild claims or serving up like the hot takes that you've come to expect from this pod. So we're, we're sort of we're going to tread. We're going to tread carefully here.
0: Yeah. And the other thing to note is if anything is wrong, it's Klaus's fault. Um, but if <laughs> you like if, if we get anything right, it's definitely a, a result of me. Even it doesn't matter who sets it. So, yes. great. But glad, glad we straightened that out. So let's talk about the daimon right in ancient Greek religion, the daimon. Um, it's a kind of divinity without a specific cult or mythology. And it's distinct from gods, on the one hand, um, and heroes, like, I don't know, Hercules is one of them. But I think I'm supposed to call him Heracles in Greek. Though in some places in Plato, so for example, the Timaeus, the word for god, theos, and demon, daimon, seem to be used interchangeably. So it's not like we have one simple agreed upon way to even discuss these terms. It does move around a little bit, depending on who you're reading. Um, But even in Plato, the source text here, you do see these differences. Um, The daimon can be fate, can be avenging spirits, can be souls of the dead. We have some serious semantic fluidity in the platonic corpus itself, which is of course, as I said, our kind of source text here. So in Plato, the term daimon has four main references and I'm gonna walk through them. So in the myth of Ur, Yes, book 10 of the Republic, souls choose the kind of life that they're going to live before reincarnation, which sounds really great, but it comes with some interesting problems, as we'll see. Thus, there are, these souls also get to choose a daimon to accompany the soul for the next 1,100 years until the next reincarnation. First, the soul receives a lot, which gives it a rank for making a choice, and then it has to make the choice. So for Plato, the responsibility of the soul, um, the the soul bears the responsibility for its life in a certain way before it's even sort of incarnated. Um, The next important sort of moment uh, where in the Platonic corpus, where Daimon comes up, is in the Symposium, everyone's favorite dinner party. So following the priestess Diotima, Socrates' teacher in the way of love, or his, you know, hypoth- perhaps th- hypothetical teacher in the way of love, um, Diatima says in her speech that's reported by Socrates, right? Yes, that the daimones are midway between gods and human beings and are divine intermediaries. Okay, seems pretty straightforward. And the paradigm for this, the example that she gives is Eros. Um, So the takeaway here is that the daimon is this divine intermediary and is not the same thing as the rational soul. That will become important as we go on. So in the Timaeus, reason dwells in us as a daimon does in a living organism. So our intellect, the nous, is understood to be a kind of daimon, the divine part of the soul. So very different from what we see in symposium. Um, And then finally, um, throughout several of the uh, Dialogues, um, we get the demonic sign. Um, uh, and this is, you can think of this as Socrates' spidey sense for avoiding trouble, inspired by a personal daimon. It's unclear if this means he's really being guided by a divine being or whether, as a quote unquote demonic man of reason, his faculties are attuned to the divinely rational. So we can see how some of these things might overlap, but they don't strictly all cohere in a straightforward way. This is not a kind of, there's no systematic daimonology or demonology in the platonic corpus. Um, And there are disagreements about how all these descriptions or instances of daimon, how they all line up um, within the neoplatonic inheritors of this tradition and so that's what motivates their internal debates uh, among each other like what is a daimon what does this stuff mean that is a question that they certainly discuss
1: definitely and it seems like they're they're fighting with each other about stuff like this as much as they're fighting with christians it seems to me but okay let's let's get started with your man
0: plotinus what's 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 the what's the lowdown with this guy what's what's he all about okay so plotinus lived in the third century he was born in egypt though his ethnic identity and much of his background is obscure to us. In his 20s, he became interested in philosophy and went to Alexandria to study under the Platonist um, Ammonius Saccas. So get this, Origen may have been this guy's student as well. Wild. Okay, so that just goes to show you how the philosophy of Neoplatonism is not happening in some kind of religious vacuum. It's growing up cheek to jowl with Christian theology. Origen is only 20 years older than Plotinus, okay? So years later, Plotinus was motivated to go east and learn the philosophical traditions of Persia and India. And so he attached himself to a doomed military expedition. And when that fell apart, he moved to Rome and became a noted teacher, counting Porphyry, among others, as one of his students. Plotinus lived 600 years after Plato. There was a lot of philosophy written between those two points in time, as you might imagine. So, Plotinus is working with Aristotle, Pythagoras, and he's also debating Gnostic Christians. His major work, edited by Porphyry, is the Aeneids, or the groups of nine, if we translate that, which were basically lecture notes.
1: Yeah, we're not going to get so hung up on the details of the Aeneids, though the the part we're looking at today is contained in them. Um... We're going to be focusing on what he was doing here uh, in this one part called on our allotted demon what he's doing here is trying to iron out the kinks while putting forward a platonic account of the daimones that takes a lot of plato's writings into account at the same time uh
0: the, and the main tension that we see is really between two different ideas to kind of summarize a little bit of this one from the timaeus is that the demonic refers to the power of the soul that is most active. Moral and ontological hierarchies in lifestyles correspond to the hierarchy of the soul. So for example, rationality over sense perception, because you know reason is always better than you know, embodied senses and whatnot. The daimon, then, is a kind of psychological function. It is like a power of the soul that stands just above the active power of the soul. It dominates the power that is active, but Plotinus maintains that it does so without being active itself. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> I, I just just, just take, take from that what you will. It shows the way proper to the power that is active, kind of coaxing us forward. It's also pushing us to adopt a way of life that is beyond the one we inhabit. And this implies that the good person, someone who's making moral progress, has several daimonists in succession, not just one. When a person dies, the soul leaves and becomes suited to the level of the daimon that guided it. Um, And here's a quote that will hopefully sort of clarify things here. And so those who maintain their humanity will return again as human beings, while those who live by sense perception alone will return as animals. But if their sense perceptions are accompanied by passion, they will return as wild beasts. So basically, we're getting a kind of um, theology of reincarnation. That is not the right term, but um, where through the kind of guidance that is not active, so important to Plotinus, it's not active. Um, but it kind of this kind of cheerleader um, that is motivating us onward, or perhaps multiple daimonas are motivating us onward to um, uh, make some progress in our lives, hopefully positive moral progress, such that when we are reincarnated, we might have hope of not falling into a lower form of being such as an animal or a wild beast, which would be the case if we were following more sense perception um, or even that sense perception made worse by passion
1: yeah i wonder like the i like the distinction between animals and wild beasts uh, which (laughs) which makes sense but like does that mean like it's better to like become back as like a domesticated animal versus like a a jackal or something i I don't know you definitely
0: want to be a cow um or like a dog and you definitely do not want to be a jackal yes i think i think we have I think that is definitely safe to say here,
1: which goes against my own instincts. But I guess it shows how how well I'm succeeding on the Plata- on Plotinus's, uh scale of things.
0: Okay, I mean, I wonder if it's like proximity to human beings. Like domestication involves a kind of contact yeah. with the rational. I don't know. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's like, yeah, it's sort of yeah. It, it all I guess it all depends on what you count as rational. But yeah. Okay, so in terms of that's, that's one thing that's going on, that you, what you just described in Plotinus. Uh, on the other hand, we have uh, the input, which is the myth of Ur that you summarized at the stop, which comes at the end of the Republic, in which the soul has to choose before its incarnation, a daemon, which will guide it. And it keeps it throughout its embodied life, even 1,100 years, as you said. Um, so this goes beyond a lifelong commitment. It implies at least one lifetime's commitment, if not several right so the soul is free insofar as it's responsible for making this choice but then one implication is that once we settle on a particular diamond or demon then we're locked into place and this takes us back to if I'm if I'm correct here like Adam Kotzko's account of the fallen angels who are also at once responsible and then locked in for the decision they made from that point on. Um, true the good angels too they're also locked in. Uh, according to Augustine, um, so that's that's a little bit an, an interesting uh, similarity, and we're also sort of getting at the problem of having like this this long term relationship with a spiritual being, but also having to be morally responsible for which one you ended up with. Uh, sort of a t- in some ways, it seems even more complicated than some of the problems that that Christian and Jewish thinkers have to deal with. So one of the problems that comes out of this account that Plotinus offers us is do we have one daimon or do we have a lot of them? If only one, does that mean we're actually not making any moral progress in a lifetime? If we if we had to do what the myth of Ur says and pick the one that lasts for over a thousand years, then that would suggest that we we can't get past that one. So what's so like you know, like how do we make sense of this? If, if if that's that's the case, there's like no point in doing and having an ethical project if you're locked in. It seems like very deterministic. Um, sometimes like you know these myths and the practical philosophy don't totally match up. To to well, you
0: know to say the least. <laughs> well, it doesn't seem like Plotinus wants to hew too close to the Ur model, even if he pays it lip service. For Plotinus, we choose our daimon in this life as we allow one power to gain the upper hand like the senses, the imagination, reason, those kinds of faculties. They match up with particular daimones. That part is descriptive, but he's also making prescriptions. We ought to be trying harder, even if what we aim to become is impossible. Choosing the gods as our models means choosing models that are totally different from us. And yet there is this idea in Plotinus that you can become functionally equal to the daimon who is leading you. And thus make that daimon redundant you level up even trying for this means a radical change of life though and this tracks with what are supposed to be his final words on his deathbed try to raise the divine in yourselves to the divine in the all
1: yeah and it sounds like sort of inspiring advice but sometimes you read in this this body of work and you're like is that even possible according to what you're laying out here (laughs) but for Plotinus if the active power governing your life is the intellect then you have chosen the best daimon. um this sort of sort of like self-reinforcing uh ideological thing going on there maybe um he writes if the intellect is active the daimon necessarily is to be found at the level of the one so that seems like that is pretty optimistic that if you're actually like living a life in accord with reason, it seems like you've actually, you're, you're doing it. You're actually, you you have like scaled the entire celestial cosmic metaphysical hierarchy to like the source of all being, or at least you're doing so as best as you possibly can as sort of an insignificant soul in the periphery of the universe. But then when I, sometimes I think about this and I'm like, I imagine these sorts of, uh, these, these philosophic raptures that Plotinus is said to have. And I keep imagining like Frodo putting on the ring and Sauron's big eye coming, zooming over and like the big eyes, the one, and it's like, maybe it's a little bit scary to be a a Hellenistic Neoplatonist philosopher. I'm, I'm just saying.
0: Yeah. So I think certainly trying to inhabit this worldview, at least for these historians of Christianity is it, it just seems challenging to inhabit this worldview. I will say, much has to hinge on what happens every 1100 years in this system and how it is possible to choose a different daimon at that moment. Are those the inflection points? And if so, how does one get the chance or with what resources does one make that selection of your next daimon? Is it sort of looking back? And so so you can think of it as, a kind of constraint, a temporally constrained freedom based on experience that just isn't continuous, but instead is kind of these chunks, um, something like that. I don't know.
1: That's some. That's or maybe like if you are able to level up radically through philosophy, you're skipping some steps. But like the normal sequence is this eleven hundred year, uh, right? Unit. I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 confusing.
0: Well, in any case, it seems that one of the authors in this collected volume, Thomas Vidar, claims that uh, Plotinus isn't super invested in working out a fully-fledged demonology, and that seems just evident by how it comes up only in these certain moments in his works. He is primarily trying to tidy up Plato. It is an exegetical exercise, first and foremost. But it gets more intense as we learn more about his great student, that is Plotinus's great student, Porphyry, who was kind of a teacher's pet from what <laughs> we can tell.
1: Right, Klaus? Well, he does write a lot about, he does write, he does organize the Aeneids and he also writes a important biography of Plotinus. So I guess I like,
0: yeah, a, d- a devoted que- question student. Though, question though, Klaus, are any of your students planning to write, like a, a, do a collected volumes of Klaus Joder and then, you know, write about you and, and sort of interpret you for the rest of their careers? Is that in the offing for you yet? Or?
1: No, no. And yeah. I'll, I'll have destroyed my hard drive by that point too. So it'll, okay. it'll be. <laughs> well, fair enough. Fair enough. So more pronunciation wars. So Porphyry was from Tyre. How would you yeah, say that? Yeah, totally. T- totally. I'm, I'm
0: imagining like um doing a reading like a like standing up in church and then Tyre coming up and I would definitely say Tyre okay yeah, yeah. so I'm actually so, we're agreeing yeah, yeah oh, fantastic
1: my instinct to say tear so that that it, it does I think you're right that we should we should disagree but my instinct would be I think to say we tier, should but, disagree yeah but Tyre we'll go with Tyre so Porphy's from Tyre a really ancient city in what is today Lebanon but was called Roman Syria in 234 CE about the time he was born Um, Also, you might remember the Prince of Tyre from the prophet Ezekiel is considered a Hebrew Bible prefiguration of Satan by Christian authors. So like this is the same spot, no coincidence. The name we know him by today was apparently a nickname from his philosophy teacher in Athens, Cassius Longinus, which means, this is Porphyry, the purple one. His original name being Malchus or King. He eventually became a student of Plotinus in Rome and took on a strict aesthetical discipline, including vegetarianism. It's not clear if this threw him for a loop, but he became like really super depressed, perhaps even suicidal. And Plotinus recommended he recuperate in Sicily, where he spent many years. I don't think vegetarianism does that to you. I think uh, I, yeah, yeah, just to
0: be fair, we 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 very much appreciate our vegetarian fans and support your lifestyle. Thank for, you. Yeah, for sure. Um,
1: Thank you. Even if even if Porphyry is is uh, doing you wrong in his, his, his right. example, right? Even if
0: he couldn't hack it, we're assuming that his strict ascetical discipline was not simply giving up meat. We we think there was probably more to it.
1: Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. His so his as I mentioned, his major contributions are editing Plotinus's writings into the Aeneids, as well as integrating. Neoplatonic philosophy and Aristotelian logic. So this is like where he really, really is hugely important. His introduction or uh, isogage which was translated into Latin by Boethius, who I think we're going to do an episode on pretty soon. Uh, and so it sort of passed into uh, Latin European scholasticism via Boethius. And it's like how people in the Middle Ages up to a certain point knew anything about Aristotle or and, and Plato, I think, too. Um, This introduction was also translated into Arabic and served as the standard work of logic in uh, the medieval Islamic world. So a sort of commonality there that Porphyry is the logic, the logician, the logic teacher of both uh, the Latin Middle Ages and the Islamic Golden Age. So he's tremendously important for the history of philosophy. his, His influence can't be understated. Um, or can't be overstated. He also found time to write polemical works against Christianity, which were duly banned and burned. The fragments of what we think he wrote on the subject have been collected, but obviously it doesn't have like the flow of a beach novel.
0: So yeah, so go ahead yeah. So Porphyry was Plotinus's student, but the student definitely takes some steps away from the teacher insofar as the top of the divine hierarchy the impassable primordial primordial divinity, you know, the one, bears more of a connection to humanity through the intellect. The philosopher is the authentic priest of this invisible supreme god. The correct form of ritual or prayer is profound silence. And if one is successful in self-purification, then the soul can enter into some kind of brief union, which, according to Porphyry, in his Life of Plotinus, Plotinus managed to do several times in his life.
1: Uh, I love that for him.
0: Uh, So yeah,
1: that's (laughs) the top of the pops. There are other gods, though. This is polytheism, my friends. But they're still pretty abstract. We're talking about things like the intellect, the good, the world soul. Very, very expansive uh, beings that sort of are playing architectural roles in this cosmology. Porphyry saw the contemplation and praise of these lower gods as being analogous to peasants offering sacrifices and prayers to the Olympians as they were traditionally understood in mythology and cultic life. Porphyry didn't have any truck with that in practice. Uh, There's a debate as to when he sort of gets really critical of these more traditional cults across his sources, Uh, but he still is using the analogy to them to establish a kind of platonic theology here. And he saw this as being similar to how Pythagorean philosophers assigned each number with a name of, of an Olympian. For example, uh, Athena's was seven, or you might say sevens was Athena, however you want to look at that. Uh, next in the Pantheon for Porphyry come Uh, The invisible gods, those gods before, like the good, the intellect, and the world soul, are invisible. We move to the visible, which includes stars and other heavenly bodies. A hint at the emerging importance of astrology for this intellectual tradition, and definitely one that will be strong going forward. The key source for Porphyry's demonology is a book called On Abstinence from Animal Food. And that ought to tell you how seriously he takes his vegetarianism. Appropriate sacrifices in his, in from his point of view, for the visible uh, divinities are barley, grains, honey,
0: fruit, and flowers. Don't tell Cain though. Whatever you do, because no, that yeah. just did not work out well for her. So
1: nope.
0: no, 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 Uh
1: But it is like very like he's like the, he's doing the vegan sacrifices here. Vegan sacrifices for the win. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So this point is not insignificant, that is to say his vegetarianism, when we discuss the cult of demons who Porphyry, like his opponents, the Christians saw as bloodthirsty and hungry for carnal sacrifices. So like there's a hierarchy of, of these, of these uh, spiritual beings that are coming into play.
0: Yeah, and they're totes vegetarian. So you have to like offer your offerings that are also vegetarian. So get it straight. So next in line in this hierarchy, um, after we've got those kind of Disembodied things that you know, abstract concepts—the good, the intellect, the world soul. Right. So then next after this are the invisible demons. Is that right, Klaus? Am I getting this? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are the invisible demons, and there's, there are a million of them. Um, this class includes the Olympian, the Olympic gods, Olympian. I'm going to call them Olympian. Olympic definitely makes them sound like they're athletes. So I feel like, um, includes the Olympian gods of Greco-Roman mythology. Um, On the one hand, these gods are not immortal or impassable in a purely divine sense, but on the other, they deserve considerable respect, even if they haven't all received their own cults. After all, they, like girls, run the world. The weather, the arts and sciences, and they also stand as intermediaries between humans and the higher gods, warning the former of evil, like Socrates with his demonic sign.
1: Guess they're guiding us right now. Maybe there's a demon for podcasters. I don't know. <laughs> in the room with us, in our in our room, yeah. If there's what of would in-
0: your offering to the god of podcasts be? Would it be silence? Would it be? I don't know. I don't know what it would be. The scholar we're working off of for this part,
1: uh, Brison, has a really great quote from Plato's Timaeus that I think is relevant to the sort of status of the demons and their relationships to the gods of Greek mythology. So this is from the Timaeus, uh, going down the hierarchy. As for the other gods, it is beyond our task to know and to speak of how they came to be. We should accept on faith the assertion of those figures of the past who claim to be the offspring of gods they must surely have been well informed about their own ancestors so we cannot avoid believing the children of the gods even though their accounts lack plausible or compelling proofs rather we should follow custom and believe them on the ground that they claim to be reco- what they claim to be reporting are matters of their own concern accordingly let us accept their account of how these gods came to be and what state it is in any case this reminded me of winston's line from the ghostbusters uh, when when Zool pops out of another dimension and torches everyone. Gozer the Gozerian? Good evening. As a duly designated representative of the city, county, and state of New York, I order you to cease any and all supernatural activity and return forthwith to your place of origin or to the nearest convenient parallel dimension. That ought to do it. Thanks very much, Ray.
0: Are you a god? No. Then.
1: Ray, when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes! These gods are basically equated with the demons who run the sublunary world um, in, in sort of... Uh, neoplatonist cosmology these 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 gods like as we said before like they're they're pulling the strings they make the weather work they they teach you how to like operate certain skills like mathematics or or even like writing or or the you know working with the muses and this sort of thing it's interesting how there's a conservative impulse to retain some measure of respect for the great myths we even sort of hear that in that plato quote i just wrote read from um the timaeus for Porphyry, though the Olympians make up a small cohort in the ranks of the multitudes of daimones who run the universe, many of whom many of whom have not been named and don't receive the acknowledgment that their more famous cousins do. So, like, just like maybe count your blessings, Greek gods mythology. You get to be famous while some poor anonymous invisible demon is working in like deep undercover, like the moles from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yes, I'm definitely on a John <laughs> Le Carre binge right now. Oh, nice. <laughs> Uh, also in terms of thinking about demons and religion a really interesting claim that i sometimes see while reading about porphyry is that when he's sort of torturing christians and he he wants that in some in some places it seems and it's hard because obviously all these sources are like chopped up and edited and maybe thrown out or burned or whatever so we have like fragments but sometimes it seems like he's like oh yeah jesus was cool jesus was a holy man you all just don't understand like his purpose in the universe, but sometimes there's also this claim that his soul was specifically demonic. Like he had an especially demonic soul and like the Christians, just like misunderstand like everything about his career and who he is. Um, Especially the part about bodily resurrection, which they were like super, the Neoplatonists were super really not into. So yeah. Um, A lot, you know, again, I think like if you wanted to go deeper into this, like, the relationship and the, the, the points of contention between Neoplatonists and patristic writers is, is super
0: fascinating. So, Klaus, you mentioned a little bit ago that these demons we're talking about now, these daimones, are invisible, right? So let's move now to the visible ones. Does that mean, you say they're visible, does that mean they're, like, easy on the eyes? These demons are hot, right? Oh, Klaus, so embarrassing. No, it means that they're evil. They're visible, <laughs> Not because they won some beauty competition, but because they project images on their airy bodies. Their numa.
1: Um, <laughs> that sounds like a dieting campaign, like from the eighties. It's like your new airy body. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, I thought you meant like numa. Like <laughs> it, to me, numa sounds like a pharmaceutical. Yeah. Um, to get you know an airy body, you need to. Um, Pneuma twice a day. Side <laughs> effects may include reading too much Greek philosophy. Demonic possession. Yeah, etc. Yeah, And listening to podcasts. Yeah. So uh, this is an important point about all the demons, both good and bad. They are made up of body and soul like humans. But this body is Pneuma. It's made up, made of Pneuma for these um, visible gods. And Pneuma, which as we've discussed before, means breath, air, or spirit – Kinda of throws the whole thing in a circle because how is a body a spirit? I mean, it really gets weird when you try and conceive of bodies made of breath or bodies made of air. Bodies made but of that's spirit. What I'm talking about, yeah, yeah, exactly. Spirit bodies, <laughs> yeah. especially spirit bodies were like, wait, how is, is but spirit here is a kind of stuff, I suppose. Exactly. A very exactly. weird, light kind of stuff. I basically just have to replace the words here, um, until it like I can Make any kind of visualization in my head, right? Um, but this really is a major stumbling block for dualistic schemas here, because you're trying to create all these intermediary um, uh, levels, and you only have a kind of dualistic way of thinking of them, right?
1: So, like this being a kind of Platonism. The evil part of these demons has to be connected to the body side of their being, right? Like, it, we're t- like super hierarchical,
0: right? Totally. So, their evil is through the domination or contamination of the soul by their bodies, which, as you remember, are airy, airy bodies this is so like di- the dieting
1: myth- sent these demons wrong like the di- dieting is what is what was what fucked them up okay got it
0: exactly well as we all know dieting is terrible so yes yeah. <laughs> i fully endorse that so this is kind of like the myth of the soul as a flying chariot that goes out of control that we might recall from plato's phaedrus which we should note is very similar to how Origen thought about the fall of the primordial intellects into material bodies so the visible demons, that is the evil ones we're talking about now, are weighed down by their quote-unquote bodies and stick close to the earth.
1: So this is an idea that the next generation of Neoplatonists, headed up by Iamblichus, really take major issue with. According to Iamblichus, higher beings can't be affected by lower states of being in the way that Porphyry assuming in what you just described. Higher beings are not like constrained or bound to some higher level of things. They can be anywhere. They're not delimited in space by their ontological hierarchy. So the idea of a downward fall does not make sense for Porphyry's critics inside the Plotinus tradition. And I would say that also applies to how some people see like Origen's account of like the fall of the primordial intellects. Like this idea, like, the whole metaphor of fall that's so central to Christian imagination is. I think being thoroughly critiqued here in a way that I find salutary. But anyway, for Iamblichus, materiality is not contagious to spiritual beings. It's inferior, so it can't be attractive. It can't grab onto spiritual intellectual beings. They're just they're different in kind, and so there can't be that kind of tainting that Porphyry seems to be assuming. But according to Porphyry, and this is the part that's probably most interesting for the, the real evil demon head listeners of the podcast... The bad demons are addicted to spilt blood and roasted flesh. They have some serious vices. And this addiction feeds into their contamination by materiality. The fact that they just love the smell of that barbecue
0: is just like keeps them okay, coming back I, for more. Texas I barbecue. I personally maybe. attacked yeah. right now having had barbecue for lunch that today. Brisket,
1: feeling... That brisket is making the demons evil. Yeah. Um, um... Again, like,
0: maybe you, this is just do like... Do I seem meaner to you? I might I might be meaner today. Maybe there's something to this. I don't know. Yeah. Uh,
1: Meteor okay. and meaner. I don't know. You, you go figure. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, again, Porphyry's vegetarianism, that might be speaking here too. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think that's definitely cropping up here. So, according to Brisson, Porphyry is an innovator in the Platonic tradition for adopting the idea of evil demons. For Plato, remember, all the demons are a-okay, like Eros, for example. Yay, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um So the evil demons administer misfortune and disaster throughout the world. Um, this might sound familiar if you remember our episode on the Watchers, where we talked about the ghosts of the Nephilim and their nefarious activities in the world. Um, They also inspire wicked religious practices, blood sacrifices in particular, for the reasons we discussed, up to and including human sacrifice, which was a big no-no. Even though he's a sharp critic of Christianity, it's hard for me to escape the impression that their demonology rubbed off. Just look at the link between demons and idolatry, for example.
1: Yeah, like the idea that evil demons are like Scamming people into the worst aspects of traditional mm-hmm. Greco-Roman religion—that um, seems so close to what Origen and other Church Fathers would say. It's it's, it's very striking to me um, as as a comparison.
0: And well, plus the linguistic link too, right? Yeah. Like that you're moving from daimon to daimonis to, de- to demons here, right? And that that slippage from. In Plato, from the good into the evil. Here, I, there, there could be. I can, I'm not gonna, am not gonna try and pull all the pieces together and make it a historical um, claim of influence necessarily. I, I don't know that I would go that far, but it's, it seems very conspicuous that we have these similarities. And that seems, it seems
1: very different there. It is inter- in and Plotinus, as I mentioned up at the top of the episode, was in debates with Gnostics, and we sort of noted there's some like sort of. Basic similarities in a theory of emanation in the sort of celestial or in- intelligible realm for both uh, schools of thought. But the one thing that Plotinus was that had beef, as it were, <laughs> with uh, the Gnostics <laughs> over was um, the assertion that for, with the for the Gnostics that the Demiurge uh in, in the words of a, a departed teacher of mine, was a real shithead and made the material world badly and that evil was implanted in the material world. Plotinus, like Iamblichus, is like, no, it's not evil. It's just, it's it's not as good, but is that the same thing as evil? And that's sort of, that hierarchy, that hierarchical thinking where it's like, okay, at the bottom of the hierarchy, it's not that it's evil like a, like a malevolent force. It's just not as good. And, a story of betrayal and good versus evil, like the Christian tradition tries to like pull both those together, especially in its demonology, and it seems like Porphyry's going for that a little bit too. But like people like Plotinus and Iamblichus are like, no, like inferior is just inferior doesn't equal scary demon exorcist face, right? Like that's not that's not what we're doing here. So another thing that sort of brings Porphyry and the Christian and the, the sort of apocalyptic Jewish account of demons together is the idea that evil demons play a role in Providence, which is less the case for Iamblichus who seems to have been ambivalent about the category of evil demons uh, altogether, altogether, although he does include them. We'll get into that a little bit later. A lot of the time, Yamplikas speaks of demons as if evil is something impossible to attribute to them. That like being a demon and being evil like is a contradiction in terms. So to the extent that humans are led astray by bodily passions, it's not because their immortal souls are being led astray. For Yamplikas, it's that there's it's their souls that are like participating or sort of like uh like couch surfing with their souls. Um, that's being led astray. So he really, that's sort of the dualism really, the dualism doesn't doesn't go to serve as like a a reading of the body's evil and the soul's good. It goes to serve that like, the body's just kind of (laughs) dumber. The body's just a little bit more uh, persuadable. So what this kind of cashes out to is that for Iamblichus, demons can't suffer. And Porphyry's model assumes that they can suffer they can like be they can be impassioned by their airy, airy, airy bodies, um, old, airy as rendered by ultra slim fast, like sort of being like vaporized in <laughs> them or something. I don't know. Uh, so, all this means is that yomblichus uh, actually ends up taking a higher view of the Olympian gods and legendary heroes, like much more so than Porphyry, and. This sort of comes together like in a way with what all sort of differentiates Siblichus from Porphyry, which is his advocacy for so this thing called theurgy, and theurgys superiority to philosophy. Could you ex- help me explain what theurgy means?:
0: um, I could, with the help of the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy's Yamplcus entry. So here goes, and they're talking about the human soul here needs external help from the gods, that is, grace in order to perform any any relevant action. Broken in its essence, it is, however, able to regain some ground through its activity. Co-action with the gods, or godlike action, which is theurgia, or theurgy, is the purpose of the Yamblichian soul, which it attains through religious acts, such as prayer, offerings, sacrifice, etc., That is the very liturgy that Porphyry had attacked in his letter to Anebo. Okay, so it seems like Iamblichus and Porphyry really disagreed about the status of religious practice. Does this do anything or not? Porphyry seems to be trying to do to it what Kant does to Christianity, render it ultra abstract, whereas Iamblichus is doubling down on the role of ritual practice in striving for the good life to do the ritual the rituals correctly you need to have the correct theological orientation but he still places his emphasis on practice here you actually have to go through the steps you know offer the sacrifices do the offerings the prayers etc
1: yeah and maybe it's like maybe we're being anachronistic and applying making that comparison but it is it is striking to see like someone and and i and i wouldn't say like it's totally just uh like traditionalism because like there are like there are like new innovations in the in ritual practice that Iamblichus is, is advocating for, but that sort of tension between like, oh, we need to tone down the, the the sort of offensive parts about traditional religion and like render it more rational versus like no like there's something there's something in traditional religion and things that grow out of it that are vital through practice. I don't know. It's 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 interesting to sort of see a debate like that that I think is I think it was being very, very modern, um in in late antiquity. Anyway, something that Porphyry and Yalbugas can agree on is the assertion that demons have pneumatic, airy, airy bodies, or what they might refer to as vehicles, like the body as
0: a vehicle. Uh, yeah, so some—it's like when you go to the gym, Klaus. You're working on your vehicle, right? <laughs> yeah, you're getting. It. I'm going to start referring to my body as my vehicle. Well, see if anyone you know who else about. refers to it, um, the uh, heaven's gate. Oh, heaven's okay. gate now getting, to their you're body putting here. me in very weird company now klaus i don't know that i like this maybe it's just my anger from eating barbecue though so yeah
1: you're just you're just raging out from uh the porphyry's (laughs) demons for sure (laughs) so yeah the the uh the the demons in both cases play like a particular role in in cosmology and particularly for yamilkas cosmology for yamilkas the they're actively binding our souls to our bodies which is interesting and they're sort of just like kind of holding together different like ontological hierarchical realms of, of existence. Um, they, they ferry souls to the material realm. I guess like maybe like that myth of error sequence. They're, they're the ones like bringing you down and uh, in, in sort of popping you into a body, maybe with a demon. Cloud, stop, stop bringing me down. <laughs> yes. So this, but the problem is like this starts to get him into like porphyry esque territory in terms of assigning materiality and the demonic together in such a way that that the demons are said to afflict the body with disease or experience other woes that result from, from being generated. And so like demons also maintain like negative bonds to the material world. In some points in Yamaka's writing souls that are, oriented downward in the hierarchy of being bring with them chains and punishments and thus submit themselves to certain kinds of demons. So like, it almost seems like there's like demons who do like nice things. And then there's like sort of like a realm of demons who are like maybe disciplining the body or disciplining the soul for its uh, incorrect inclinations. Um, Similar to Porphyry, Yamblichus, when he sort of stumbles into the discussion of evil demons, refers to them as blood sucking, which was evocative uh, and and pleasantly vampiric, uh, greedy for blood and savage, pleasant customers, you know, like student debt collectors for instance uh maybe they're oh shade yeah yeah but i mean i'm
0: totally with you so
1: go. but how did they get like that right i think that's an interesting question for for iamblichus wasn't it supposed to be impossible he seems to sort of lurch back into the way porphyry made sense of this phenomenon lower ranking demons lower than the gods are lesser because of their attachment to generative nature again a kind of contamination So maybe we're just like overstating the value of logical consistency across a person's writings through their entire life. And I kind of, I was sort of more into the Yamblichus's critique of of Porphyry's notion of the evil demon in the first place. Um, But he, it almost seems like he has like this, this class of evil demons that aren't really, they're like fake demons, um, that the real demons can't experience all these things and he solved the problem. He like, he seemed to have wanted, had some desire for this category of evil demons to explain this or that and just made a different category. And it's like, you were talking, you were making a category mistake. It's a lot less satisfying, I think, but that's, that's where we're at. Uh, but he, yeah, he sees evil demons as counterfeit demons and they engage with sorcerers and scamming magicians where, you know, like are like counterfeiting theurgists, I guess. And so the category of evil demon presents itself as more of an anomaly in this cosmological metaphysical system, uh, if system is the right word.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you, Klaus, on this. Um, I think this shows us how messy the adjective evil can make things in these systems. It seemed like Iamblichus had a good point in the way he critiqued Porphyry's You know crudely vertical stacking hierarchy that you're talking about that places evil with materiality at the bottom and yes we're looking at you dante according to this model materiality is supposed to be part of the process of the one's emanation so for iamblichus it's not bad per se it's just subordinate an important distinction here right so the idea of evil demons demons that are at once higher than humans and lower in some sense seemed like a contradiction in terms that he was illuminating until he falls into the same pit himself
1: so but on the flip side with porphyry as well as with most of the christian tradition if some demons are evil yet highly suited to the providential arrangement of the universe in one sense are they really evil like if they're if they play a vital role in the in, in providence like like evil itself like starts to seem like a strange predicate to apply to them
0: uh. A perennial kind of
1: question in this pod, right? Definitely, definitely. I don't really want to make this out as, as like, this is not a hot take about Christianity or, or apocalyptic Judaism contaminating Platonism, but, like, it does, I don't know, I really am, like, struck by the similarities, especially with Porphyry, and, like, I'm interested in, like, the ways these thinkers, like, use middle middle beings like angels and demons as a way to make sense of humanity's distance with the supreme divine simplicity the one it's like sort of like this i I don't know it's like an interesting impulse to be like we need middlemen we need we need like bureaucratic functionaries to uh to like help us deal with the vastness or the inaccessibility of this like primal cosmic metaphysical principle
0: yeah i think that's Really, an interesting parallel that you're seeing between these, you know, philosophies, religions. One sort of difference I would I would want to talk about there is what does Christology do um, when you have an incarnate God, and then yet yeah, you all you you still see these intermediaries. How does that reveal something interesting about moving back to Neoplatonism and what the intermediaries are for there? Um, I guess the first thing I would say is that, well, <laughs> which neoplatonism are you talking about? Because right. yeah. see, if we've learned anything here, I think we've learned that there's not a whole lot of agreement specifically on the issue of the daimones or these intermediaries and what they might do or not do and how that relates to the good life and to the possibility of moral change, reincarnation, et cetera. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I think another link, if we want to think about this tradition uh, loosely construed as it is, like if we if we see like with Christology that we're supposed to have an intermediary with with the word made flesh, then you have the saints as intermediaries between us and the intermediary. like they're they are mm-hmm. fully participating in the reconstituted new and improved humanity that Jesus brings online. And so like there are, role like sort of intermediary role models between like that in its most perfected form and
0: wherever we're at which is presumably not there (laughs) or think of mariology as well that's Mm. another place where you have someone sort of you pray to a figure who prays on your behalf like the saints um, but particularly with this kind of turn toward divine mercy it seems that the fully divine nature of christ is yet even just sort of in spite of the incarnation is still too far, um, for a kind of direct access in some forms of, of Christian devotion. So we've got this, this urge for these, you know, across these different traditions, this urge for someone who can, um, some, some beings who can help, uh, bridge that chasm, especially I would say in Platonism, you've got the unmoved mover. You've really got this impassable, um, impersonal, impersonal. Even exactly um, being, you know, really like can't touch this mm-hmm. is probably the theme song for the one. <laughs> um, and my ridiculous voice is an attempt, actually, to try and assert a really hard break between the world um, and whatever we can uh, gesture toward. Can't touch this. You can't touch this you can't touch this can't touch this can't touch this my my my, my music hits me so hard makes me say oh my lord thank you for blessing me when i mind to run and do like to it feels good when you know you're down a super dope homeboy from the old town and I'm known as such and this is a beat. You can't touch this. Uh, but we'll get to more of that a neoplatonist sort of Twist on Christianity later on that makes me think of Pseudo Dionysius and the um, the ways we'll talk about the divine names and the difficulty with all language to approach the divine. I think we're going to come back to some of those ideas of the the, the um, that intermediaries are meant to help with in the Neo- in Neoplatonic philosophy.
1: Yeah. Excellent landing. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I think in we haven't even gotten our schedule completely down, but I think there's like an argument for maybe Boethius next time. Um, there's an argument for pseudo Dionysius. We're going to be dealing with some Christian Neoplatonists, I guess is safe to say, you know, one one way or the other. But yeah, maybe we'll we'll wrap it up here. I guess.
0: Yeah, sounds good. So thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Ward, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.